0: May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. <laughs> yeah. So as we heard this morning's Gospel reading, which was slightly longer than it was supposed to be, but for good reason... This is what should have been running through our heads. Maybe not danger, Will Robinson, but certainly danger, Jesus, danger. This morning's reading, well, if we had read this morning's gospel all the way through, like it is a a movie, as I talked about last week, not kind of breaking it up into little chunks, but starting from the beginning and just going all the way through. If we had done that, then this morning's reading is full of tension and danger, The tension is thick in the air. Twice the Pharisees have tried to stone Jesus. And so Jesus is now down in the Jordan opposite Jericho where it all began. Where he is safe away from the Judean elite. The word we keep translating as Jews really means the Judean elite. And certainly some of the Pharisees were part of that group of people. The Judean elite. Jesus knows and his disciples know that to go anywhere near Jerusalem is certain death. They will kill him next time. And yet, as we hear this morning, his beloved friend Lazarus is dying. And so Jesus eventually does the honourable thing and returns to a house filled with the Judean elite. Lazarus, And Mary and Martha are members of that group. So there is Jesus, right in the heart of the group seeking to kill him. Danger, Will Robinson, danger. It's all around. And so once Jesus arrives, the story starts to get much darker. Much, much darker. And once Lazarus is raised... Well, their hands are forced. Too much is at stake. Jesus must die. And if we'd read on a little bit further, so must Lazarus again. The evidence needs to be removed. The powers of darkness are gathering. The story acts as a hinge in John's Gospel. It is right in the middle, chapter 11. (coughs) It's 21 chapters. And this is the last of the signs. Now, we can get hung up on the signs, but if we get hung up on the signs, we miss what the signs are pointing to. The miracles in Jesus' Gospel are signs. And in fact, John's are very scathing of people who believe in Jesus just because of miracles. In John's Gospel, they are the ones who are most likely to fall away and do when things get tough like when Jesus' teaching gets too tough or stuff gets too tough. The signs, the miracles were signs that pointed to something else. It's like if we have a beautiful signpost pointing to something and kind of stay admiring the signpost without ever going to where the signpost is pointing. So the miracles in John's Gospel are signposts. They point somewhere else. Up to this point, Jesus' ministry had largely been public. So all his signs had been in public places. They had been where people could see and could begin to understand or not understand what he was on about. From this point on, Jesus is just with the disciples. There are no more public conversations. There are no more signs. He is just with the disciples. And then we have the events of Good Friday and Easter. The weight of these looming events is very heavy in this story. In this story, the end has begun. And in the midst of all of this gloom, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So I'm going to change the, the, re- the words of the gospel a little bit because a number of commentators say that the word we translate as believe should also be translated as trust. That belief for us has become some kind of intellectual exercise. But in fact, what the word is really talking about is trusting. Absolute trust. So, those who trust in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and trusts in me will never die. Do you trust this? Or as the message translates it, you don't have to wait for the end. I am, right now, resurrection and life. The one who trusts in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives trusting in me does not ultimately die at all. Do you trust this? Do you trust this? Do we trust this? And what do we think it means This Jesus being the resurrection and the life. I think the answer to that is shaped by what we think Good Friday and Easter are all about. So what is the cross and Easter all about? How would you answer that question? Okay, How would you answer that question? It's a real question. Do you want to talk to your neighbour for about 30 seconds just to see if any ideas pop into your head? You've got 30 seconds to give an entire theology of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. shouldn't be too hard at all. By now? Nor all those long books that have been written about this. So, who'd like to start? How do we explain what Good Friday and Easter is all about? Anyone? Well, I might be pretty basic. Look, to me, it's always just been the crucifixion and working through to the resurrection. Yep. So, and what's all that about? Why did all that need to happen? It's sort of working through the bad and coming out to the good at the other end. I'm sure everybody here has had, had something bad happen, and because you work through it, you come out at the other end, and perhaps you're a better person or other things can be better, and sort of I don't know, bring down to human <laughs> How we have to do it. Any other ideas, Trevor? I have a lot of ideas, but it was an exercise for us to understand. But I liked your interpretation on trust, and I took that one step further and give us confidence. Yep. You your spirit, goes on. Yep. One of the lines we have to wrestle with is that Jesus died for our sins and that's I think quite a difficult one that we get hooked up on um, and that's been understood in a whole lot of different ways but the dominant way that's understood at the moment is, comes from a man called St. Anselm who was the Archbishop of Canterbury around 1100, well, a little bit earlier than that but not much earlier than that. And he wanted to use feudal society as a way of explaining what that line meant about dying for our sins. So he said, well, the whole crucifixion story was like, you know, in our society where the king equals God is the king of everything and there are laws that have to be obeyed if you want to live in the realm of the king, the kingdom. And if you don't obey those laws, you are punished because that's how it works and you might actually be kicked out of the kingdom, if you're too bad, and not ever allowed back in. And he said, well, that's how it is with God. We were living in the kingdom, which is heaven, but now we have disobeyed the rules and we've been kicked out because God is angry with us. And until somebody pays a price, you're not going to get back in. Unfortunately, the only, way, the only price you can pay is to die, so you're never going to get back into heaven. Luckily for us, Jesus came along, sent by God, And Jesus took all of God's anger onto him, and he died, and now we can get back into heaven. Now there were a couple of innovations in this thing of Anselm, both of them not his, but one of them had been around for a little while. The first is saying that the whole point of the Jesus story was about getting back into heaven. See, that wasn't the point for a long time. It was about living in this world. The biblical story is all about what happens in this world. Paul doesn't talk about getting into heaven, he talks about the renewal of creation. The Jews weren't looking about getting into heaven. Their Messiah wasn't someone who was going to take them off to heaven, they were about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, the return of the glory of God to the temple. Something that hadn't been around since the time of the exile. They'd rebuilt the temple, but the Shekinah, the glory of God, had not returned. So it was all about here, and it was about now. The other innovation was that the person who needed the punishment to happen was God. Up to Anselm, no one had said that. The punishment was required by Satan. The punishment was required by the powers of this world. The punishment was required by us. We could not believe that we were fully forgiven. Surely we can't be forgiven. Surely something has to happen before we can be forgiven. And God saying, no, you're just forgiven. It's a free gift. It's yours if you want it. No, something has to happen. Anselm is the one who says God was angry and God needed somebody to pay. 1100 before somebody came up with that idea. And that's become the dominant idea. And so if you talk to most people, they either think that's a great way of explaining the Easter story... And that makes the most sense, and they can quote a few Bible passages to explain it and say it's biblical. Or they don't like it, so then they come up with alternatives. But what they are doing is trying to come up with alternatives to this narrative, to the story. But actually, it's not, not the traditional story. It's not how we traditionally understood what was going on Easter. It's the new story, even if it is 900 years old. And there were some innovations in there. Somehow we have to kind of go back and reclaim what this is all about. And so what it was all about wasn't about God needing people to be punished. But God's act of love. Now, I said a few weeks ago that I've been reading N.T. Wright's book while well, listening to, very slowly... Uh, the Day the Revolution Began, which is a theology of the cross. And he describes that Anselm understanding of, um, of what Easter is all about as non-biblical. So, yes, you can quote some biblical passages, but actually if you look at the Bible as a whole, it has nothing to do with what the Bible as a whole is on about. And based on pagan ideas, this idea that God was the angry one who needed to be appeased before anything could happen. That comes from pagan religions, not from Judaism, not from Christianity. And he suggests that the point of the cross was not to get people into heaven. Sure, heaven is part of the equation, but the point was so that people could remember who they were created to be. Who are we created to be? People made in the image of God. And Jesus shows us what that looks like. A God of compassion and generosity and mercy and love. The cross and the resurrection are about us becoming once again the image of God and living that out. Here and now, the cross is the breaking of the powers of darkness so that creation can be renewed and be all that God intended it. That's what Easter, that's what Good Friday is all about. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's not pointing to something that's going to happen in the future. Martha says to him, I believe that on the last day my brother will rise. And he's going, no, it's not about the last day, it's about now. The point of the story is it's about Now. But lots of people read it that way. Some of the manuscripts actually leave out the life. They go, why do we need the life in there? It's all about what happens after we die. Actually, it's all about now. It's all about resurrection and life now. One or two commentators left out life and just talked about what happens when we die. This understanding of the point is to get into heaven is all pervasive. But actually, it's about now. Now. The kingdom of God is now and not yet. The reign of God is now and not yet. It has begun now. We are waiting for its fulfillment. So, going back to that very first question. Do we believe, trust, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? now and if we do how do we live that out in our everyday lives because that's what Jesus was looking for to trust that we can live now so I invite you just to spend a moment in quiet thinking about that and reflecting on that